Mr. Saccharin. Aha! A model of the unicorn. Just as I thought. My ship. Could you explain to me how it got here, please? On today's episode, pirates, pickpockets, and perilous antique collectors. It could only be Radio Tintin, the secret of the unicorn. Browsing the local flea market, Tintin discovers a quaint antique model ship and decides to buy it for his friend Captain Haddock. No occasion, he just thinks it would be nice, what a good friend. He is perplexed and irritated that not one but two strangers approach him at the market and insist on buying the model off him for increasingly exuberant prices. Why are they so desperate for this ship? Maybe they need a gift for their own sailor friends, we don't know. Tintin turns down their cash, which isn't wise. He hasn't been seen doing any work for the past eight stories. If he wants to keep that quite nice apartment he's got in the middle of town, he's gonna need money from somewhere. He also runs into detectives Thompson and Thompson, who warn him that a pickpocket is loose in the town, stealing men's wallets. They haven't caught them yet, because unlike Tintin, they actually have jobs, but they're just not very good at them. Tintin takes the ship home, where Snowy breaks off the mast of the model. Bad dog, but it's fixable, no harm done. Captain Haddock stops by, unannounced, why not, they're good friends, and wouldn't you know it, the model is of a ship called the Unicorn, which was captained by the captain's ancestor, Sir Francis Haddock. The captain drags Tintin across town to show him a portrait with the very same ship in the background. There's a lot of running between apartments in this story, try to keep up. Tintin returns home to find the model has been stolen, but who would steal a model ship? Perhaps Mr. Saccharin, one of the two men very interested in buying it from him earlier that day. Tintin, full of indignant rage, bursts into Saccharin's apartment and sees a model of the unicorn, but it's not his model of the unicorn. It can't be. The mast isn't broken. Which means there must be more than one of the same model. Confused and apologetic after harassing this senior citizen in his own home, Tintin returns to his apartment, again, to find it has been ransacked. But whoever the culprit was didn't find what they were looking for. Underneath the dresser, Tintin discovers a piece of parchment with a vague and confusing message written on it. It must have been hidden in the mast of the model and rolled under the dresser when Snowy broke it earlier. The next day, he goes to see the captain, again, to tell him what has happened and finds the old sea dog in quite a state. Inspired by the earlier talk of his ancestor, the captain began poking through the attic and through an exaggerated, though it must be said masterful, performance, he acts out before Tintin the contents of his ancestor's diary, which he discovered in an old chest belonging to Sir Francis. In the 17th century, Sir Francis, a captain in the navy of King Charles II, or if you're reading the original French version, King Louis XIV, was set upon on the high seas by the dreaded pirate known as Red Rackham, or in the original French, Rackham Le Rouge. Sir Francis is the sole survivor of the attack, but manages to kill Red Rackham and scuttle the captured unicorn with all of Rackham's ill-begotten treasure aboard. Francis spends another two years on a nearby tropical island before being rescued and returning to write his diaries and craft three identical models of the unicorn for his three sons. 
Tintin theorizes that each of the models must contain a piece of parchment necessary to find the location of Red Rackham's treasure. Well, that's sorted. Except it's not. Tintin's wallet, with the first parchment inside, is stolen by the pickpocket at large. Mr. Saccharin is found passed out in his apartment with his model unicorn broken and the second parchment stolen. A few days later, Tintin is kidnapped by the perpetrators of the attack, a pair of ruthless antique collectors named the Bird Brothers, who will stop at nothing to get all three parchments, though they're down to just one after their wallet gets stolen as well. Perhaps entrusting just two identical detectives to the case was insufficient to stop a citywide crime wave. Tintin escapes from the cellars of the estate of the Bird Brothers, the luxurious Marlin Spy Call, and the Thompsons arrive in time, for once, to arrest the villains. Following this, they manage to track down the pickpocket as well, a retired civil servant named Aristides Silk, who harbours a kleptomaniacal obsession with stealing men's wallets. From the recovered wallets, Tintin and Haddock retrieve the Bird Brothers' parchments and hold them together in the light to discover the coordinates of the wreck of the unicorn. Red Rackham's treasure, here we come. Wait a minute, are Tintin and Haddock allowed to keep the Bird Brothers' parchment? Surely that's still their property, even if they are murderers. What about Mr. Saccharin's parchment? He didn't even do anything wrong. Will he get a share of the treasure if they find it? Oh wait, I've just read ahead. No, he won't. Regardless, Red Rackham's treasure, here we come. The Secret of the Unicorn was serialized in the French-language Belgian newspaper Le Soir from June 11th, 1942 to January 14th, 1943. Belgium was under German occupation at the time, and Le Soir was a stolen newspaper, or, if you prefer, a pirate newspaper? That is, a newspaper that was permitted to remain in circulation after their editorial control was entrusted to German collaborators, ensuring that there was a subtle but steady stream of Nazi propaganda embedded within the pages of each issue. Summarizing Urge's status at the time, Michael Farr states, By 1942, Urge had settled in the daily slot given to him in Le Soir and was mastering the transformation from black and white newspaper comic strip to color book. The war had not curtailed demand for stories. On the contrary, it was greater than ever before, fueled by the enhanced exposure in Le Soir and doubtless an increased desire for diversion. Urge, at this time, had to be conscious of the stories he wrote. If he criticised the Nazis in his comics, he would be out of a job and possibly dead. On the other hand, to make his comics as pro-Nazi as the rest of the publication currently was, he would lose all credibility and respect as an artist. Many Belgians were, after all, prepared to purchase Le Soir and roll their eyes as they flicked through the propaganda just to keep up to date with the adventures of Tintin, which had remained constant since long before the war began. The balance was found through a simple philosophy. At least for now, remove Tintin from the realm of politics entirely. Unlike Urge's pre-war stories, which dealt with geopolitical conflict, wars and international espionage, Tintin's wartime adventures were, ironically, mostly escapist in nature, making little to no references to the uncertainty of the ongoing world war, and instead taking readers on faraway adventures. He was not entirely successful in this philosophy. The previous Tintin story to grace the pages of Le Soir, Tintin and the Shooting Star, was ostensibly a treasure hunt story set on the high seas, but consciously or carelessly, flirted with themes of Euro-American rivalry and anti-Semitism. 
his next adventure would, mercifully, be free of any such charges. The Secret of the Unicorn would ultimately represent the first half of one story, continued in the album Red Rackham's Treasure. While it's true that Urge's earlier story, The Blue Lotus, followed on from the preceding Cigars of the Pharaoh, the sense of continuation is much stronger across Unicorn and Red Rackham. With Tintin and Haddock working to discover the location of the treasure in the first volume, and then setting out to retrieve it in the second. The high seas escapism of the latter made possible by the dense detective work of the former. Even if the story continues beyond its final page, Unicorn can be read as a standalone story in the Tintin canon, and thus should be analysed as such. In typical fashion, Urge was busy planning this work while he was still finishing The Shooting Star in May 1942. But what adventure would Tintin undertake next? Political neutrality was only one of the prerequisites for this new story. You see, Captain Haddock, firmly in place as Tintin's sidekick by this stage, could not be excluded. So once more, Tintin would need to have a reason to include the captain in his exploits, which meant it had to be in some way nautically related. So, no war, no politics, escapist in nature and featuring the captain as a central character. Benoit Peters, discussing the inspiration behind the latest Tintin adventure, notes, Not wanting to venture into such treacherous territory as that of the shooting star, Urge focused instead on a subject that could not be more timeless, the search for treasure. This is not a simple story of escape, it is truly a flight from current events that he did not know how to handle. By sending his characters into Robert Louis Stevenson's footsteps, Urge knew he had given himself plenty of elbow room. But in order to give freshness to the theme, he would have to concentrate on his own universe and complete his gallery of heroes. And to do this, Urge wanted to create a fully dimensional plot. He wanted to tell the story to stretch over the course of two books instead of just one. This exceptional length allowed him to give his talent as a storyteller free reign. Importantly, Urge was also considering retirement. Not for himself, but for Tintin. It's been an ongoing joke in this podcast that Tintin hasn't really been doing much reporting for several albums, but it does bear repeating that his career was initially an integral part of his character. Rather than just another comic strip, Tintin was initially presented as a real reporter for Le Petit Vintième, the newspaper in which he appeared. For a world-curious 20-something ex-Boy Scout like the young Urge, a reporter that had the privilege to travel the world and experience the richness of exotic cultures would have been the ideal model for his new character. Globe-trotting reporters like the French Albert Londres helped pioneer a new genre of investigative journalism, with Londres visiting the Soviet Union, the Congo, China and India a decade before Tintin would do the same. Stuck behind a desk in the middle of Brussels, Urge sent the reporter Tintin out in his place. However, the pretense that Tintin's adventures were being experienced as part of his line of work was slowly dropped as the series progressed. And undoubtedly, Urge had become convinced that this contrivance was becoming unnecessary and possibly dangerous. In occupied Belgium, reporters were no longer the daring heroes like Londerers. They were either eager propagandists for the Nazi cause, or spies for the Allied cause. Tintin fit neither mould, and The Secret of the Unicorn would make no reference to Tintin's occupation. Harry Thompson concludes, Tintin's journalist as newsmaker reporting belonged firmly to the pre-war tradition. For the time being at least, Tintin would become an explorer instead. For appearances sake, Tintin would continue to be called a reporter, but in practice his notebook and pencil were set aside for good in 1942. 
Helping to shape the direction of this new era in Tintin's life would be Jacques van Melkebecker. Van Melkebecker was an artist and art critic that worked on Le Soir's children's supplement, in which Tintin appeared at the time, though paper shortages would eventually force the adventures uncomfortably into the midst of the paper's main body. Hergé, drawn to his colleague's intellect and a passion for fine art that matched his own, instantly struck up a friendship with Van Melkebecker, collaborating first on two commercially successful Tintin stage plays in 1941 and 1942. And while Hergé would, as always, retain sole credit for any of Tintin's comic stories, for the duration of the war, Van Melkebecker would serve as one of the many unofficial collaborators that contributed to the series, either through technical assistance or, in Van Melkebecker's case, assistance with story formulation. It wouldn't be too much of a stretch to call him a co-plotter of all of the Tintin stories that were originally published in Le Soir during World War II. He is credited with helping to imbue this era of Tintin with the aforementioned fantastic nature. The influence of classic authors such as H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, who Hergé had never looked to for inspiration, are evident in this era of Tintin. For his efforts, the artist would come to be immortalised in the eventual Secret of the Unicorn as a bushy-haired, bespectacled man pictured at the flea market. And so, through Hergé's imperative for politics-free escapism, and Van Melkebecker's love of classics like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, a plot involving shipwrecks and treasure hunts began to rise from the depths. Hergé was aware that the Unicorn, Sir Francis's vessel, would be heavily featured in both Captain Haddock's narrated flashbacks and in the form of the three identical models which prove central to the plot, and he wanted to ensure that it would be as historically accurate as possible. No doubt he was still rankled to admit that the Sirius, the ship he created for the preceding Tintin story, was imagined whole cloth, and based on its design, would not have been able to stay afloat. To avoid repeating this mistake, he turned to an old friend from, where else, the Boy Scouts. Gerard Liga Belair was a talented craftsman who had previously assisted Hergé as a technical advisor on one of his non-Tintin, Joe, Zet and Jocko stories. Now there are conflicting reports about the extent of Liga Belair's input. Either Hergé tasked him with the creation and the design of the ship, or Hergé completed his own research and provided the details for his friend to create blueprints and later a scale model for use as an artistic reference while drafting. Either way, the Unicorn was inspired by a number of real ships from Sir Francis's era. Most notably Le Brilliant, though the unicorn figurehead on the bow was taken from a later English frigate, which itself was called the Unicorn. With such detailed schematics at his disposal, Hergé was able to render the integral scenes of naval combat between Sir Francis Haddock and Red Rackham with an admirable degree of creative confidence, or in the words of Farr, a triumph of accuracy. While the story of Sir Francis and his ship are central to the secret of the unicorn, Hergé manages to masterfully fit in 62 pages a dense and some might say complex story derived of three disparate plot threads. First, the unfolding mystery of the model ships and their hidden parchments. Second, Haddock's dramatic retelling of the fate of his ancestor. And third, an ostensibly unrelated but entirely consequential subplot involving a spate of pickpockets across the city, together producing what Peters calls one of Hergé's greatest narrative successes. 
Indeed, it could be argued that the plot is almost too involved for his target audience, with young readers required to keep track of which character possesses any of the three different ships with their three different parchments at any time. So balancing the fantastic of the captain's pirate flashbacks is a dense domestic detective story laden with mid-direction. More Arthur Conan Doyle than H.G. Wells, if we're keeping with Van Melkebecker's English literary inspirations. However, some of the scenes were undeniably from the mind of Hergé. Tintin finds the model at the Place des Jeux de Bol, when I have a French phrase, I just power through it and just hope for the best, I'm not retaking that. Home of the aptly titled Old Market. Belgium's only daily flea market, located in the Morellon quarter of Brussels and continuing from 1873 to the present day. The stalls and stands, crammed with worthless and not so worthless bric-a-brac, where a discerning customer could find the bargain of a lifetime, were a familiar sight for the native Bruselier Hergé. Yet it is the captain's living room theatrics and flashback that must ultimately serve as the highlight of the album. Driven into a schoolboy frenzy of excitement, having read Sir Francis's diary the night before, he dons his ancestor's plumed hat and brandishes a cutlass while he narrates the story of a sea battle and fight to the death with the scoundrelous Red Rackham. Urge perfectly balances the melodrama with comedy, as Haddock changes back and forth into the identical Sir Francis, going from skewering pillows to slaying pirates, with Tintin all the while trying to keep the story on track by preventing the captain from including copious rum consumption in his retelling. Jean-Marc and Randy Lofficer named the wily Sir Francis as quote, the most realized character in the book, and Hergé clearly enjoyed the chance to create this part of his thrilling tale. Pirates were a staple of popular fiction in the first half of the 20th century, and through Haddock's retelling, Hergé manages to incorporate the genre in a way completely keeping with the contemporary exploits of Tintin, indulging the fantasy while keeping the story entirely grounded. Some critics are quick to look into the importance of the inclusion of Sir Francis. Through him, the captain is given a history and a lineage, something that Tintin, the eternal orphan, is forever denied in the series. There's room for psychoanalysis, always, when recalling the hushed rumours surrounding Urge's family tree and who exactly his paternal grandfather was. Was the invention of a family tree for the captain in any way an attempt to exorcise these demons? Possibly. But more probably, Urge realised Haddock needed an ancestor so he could conveniently find his journals, while Tintin's lack of a family, by design, made him more of a blank slate unto which readers could project their fantasies. Regardless of this, the inclusion of the impressive Sir Francis as a relative of the captain's does lend a sense of grandeur to what is, at this stage, still a largely clownish sidekick. This is perhaps another gift of the imagination presented to Urge's young readers. If the incorrigible Captain Haddock could have a swashbuckling hero in the family tree, perhaps you could too, young man. Of course, any hero is only as impressive as the villains he faces, and Red Rackham, though briefly featured, remains one of the most memorable characters in the Tintin series. With his pointed, sneering features, bloodthirsty ruthlessness, and resplendent attire, he embodies the role of the archetypal Pirate King, and a far cry from the typical gangsters and smugglers Tintin usually tangles with. Indeed, the only drawback to the inclusion of Red Rackham is that it serves to make the contemporary villains Tintin has to battle, the Bird Brothers, seem somewhat banal. It's an intriguing concept to have Tintin face off with murderous antique dealers this time, but ultimately they don't leave 
much of an impression. Mr. Bullwinkle, our problematic fave from the preceding story, displays more personality in a mere smile, but let's not praise the design of Mr. Bullwinkle too loudly. The brothers attempt to induce Tintin into revealing the whereabouts of the parchments by locking him in the cellar of their estate and pretending to speak to him as the ghost of the captain of the unicorn is only a brief display of imagination in an otherwise stock standard repertoire of chloroforms and shootouts we've seen several times throughout the series so far. The Bird Brothers are also overshadowed by the other villain of the story, though villain is a harsh indictment in this case. As Aristide Silk, the culprit behind the missing wallet epidemic, explains in his own words, he is not a thief, certainly not, but a bit of a kleptomaniac. Aristides may have been named after Aristides of Athens, the Catholic saint, though what ironic point Urge would be making in this decision is not obvious. Did Aristides of Athens famously not steal wallets? Catholic listeners, feel free to write in. The reveal of Silk is a deliberate and humorous anti-climax. Amidst the shootings and the ransackings and the chloroforming, the man who has been inadvertently causing so much of the drama was not a ruthless mastermind or rival treasure seeker, but a quirky little man motivated only by, of all things, an obsessive fascination with men's wallets. Look, we've all got our hobbies, that's hardly the worst one I've heard of. Also introduced in this story is Nesta, the Bird Brothers' stuffy but dependable butler. His encounter with Tintin is a brief and violent one, featuring a fierce grapple over the estate's telephone and a nasty bump on the head for both men. Despite this injury, Tintin duly explains to Thompson and Thompson when they finally arrive on the scene that the butler is not a fiend like those men who employ him, and that he was merely protecting the household from what he reasonably assumed was an intruder. Perhaps he sees in this otherwise pompous man a sense of courage and steadfast loyalty. Still, he's a minor player in the story, and nobody would anticipate that Tintin and Nesta would ever meet again, he said, foreshadowingly. Marlin Spike Hall, the English name of the home of the Bird Brothers and Nesta, was based on the real-life Chateau de Cheverny, the Law Valley mansion constructed in the 17th century. Urge kept a tourist pamphlet of the chateau in his archives and mirrored it almost exactly in his panels, though he made the decision to slice off the two outermost wings of the chateau, no doubt knocking a few thousand francs off the asking price. Even so, you'd need a fortune. Or a treasure, he said, foreshadowingly again. Urge's original French name for the mansion, Molinsart, was derived by Urge as an inversion of Sart Molon a village in northern Belgium. After Urge's death, Molenzart would serve as the name of the publishing and merchandising wing of his estate, before that name was changed earlier this year to Tintin Imaginatio, because that decision made sense to somebody. The English name Marlin Spike, attributed to Michael Turner and Leslie Lonsdale Cooper, as almost all English adaptions are, more directly corresponds to the nautical theme of the story, a Marlin Spike being a small metal spike used in nautical rope work. The English translation also changes Sir Francis to a captain in the navy of British King Charles II rather than French King Louis XIV, though this reads as a correction rather than a translation, and in retrospect it's curious that Urge would make the captain's ancestry French in the first place, considering Haddock is widely read as very firmly British. The unicorn ship itself, however, is very firmly French in its design. Or so I've read, I don't know how to 
distinguished ships. I drive a Honda. The manor and surrounding estate are shown extensively in the third act chase, when the Bird brothers capture and pursue the fleeing Tintin. His escape from the cellar demonstrates an increased ingenuity on Tintin's part and imagination on that of Urge. In Tintin in the Land of the Soviets, Tintin escapes starving to death in his cell by sneezing and causing the bars to fall apart. In Tintin in America, he cuts through the floor of a would-be kidnapper's car with a handsaw that he happens to carry in his luggage. Here, he doesn't rely on dumb luck or hidden tools. Instead, constructing a battering ram from a wooden beam and bedsheets and swinging it against the cellar wall until it breaks. The Boy Scout expertise of Urge's many happy years creeps into the story in gratifying ways, at the expense of the unsatisfactory cheap tricks that marked his early work. The mystery of the missing parchments, the pirate flashbacks, the kidnapping and escape, and the impassioned confessions of Aristide Silk, the story of the first volume wraps up very nicely and ends with Tintin and the captain, safe and sound at the kitchen table, but with decidedly no treasure. For the reader, hoping Tintin would end the story flushed with cash, he offers them a direct address in a rare fourth wall break from Urge. We shall certainly have plenty of adventures on our treasure hunt. You can read about them in Red Rackham's Treasure. Thus, the reader is assured, the story is over, but the adventure is not. Hello there, pirates and pickpockets. I hope you're enjoying this deep dive into the secret of the unicorn. Pun definitely intended. And if you're not, then I'm genuinely sorry to hear that. I try really hard on these scripts. Thank you to everyone listening for being always so patient with this, let's say, drawn out schedule. The 9 to 5 grind does, of course, take up most of the time that could be better spent researching Franco-Belgian comic classics. Fortunately, I am not a man that is motivated by vast sums of money. I'm a man that is motivated by very small sums of money, and if you'd like to give me some so I can keep buying tea and biscuits, which I am enjoying now, uh, mm, uh, head to patreon.com forward slash radio tintin podcast and support the show. The lowest tier is only two Australian dollars per episode, and if I don't make anything, you don't pay anything, so you've got nothing to lose. I suppose, you, well, you lose the two dollars that you're paying, but you think about the, the wisdom and the insight that you gain in exchange for that. All tiers get access to episodes as soon as they are finished, meaning when all your co-workers are at lunch chatting about how they can't wait for the latest episode of Radio Tintin to find out where Urge got his inspiration for the name Molenzart, you can actually shuffle in and quite smugly explain to them that you actually already heard that episode, and yeah, it's a doozy. Don't do it, though. A massive thank you to my Rocket Tier patrons, who are M. Fanan, Josh U, Leo, Sally W, Sam R, and Yorick Incandenza. You guys are the real treasure. If you can't afford to support the show financially, or you just don't want to, which that's your right, you can still help me out by leaving a five-star rating or positive review wherever you get your podcasts, and even places that you don't. I had one gentleman uh, tell me that he left me a review on Spotify, even though he listens to the show on Google Podcasts, because Google doesn't allow podcast reviews for some reason. So I thought that's ingenuity and loyalty, which are two things that Tintin is all about. Follow the show on Instagram at tintin.podcast, 
or facebook.com forward slash Radio Tintin podcast. I post very frequently. But that is enough plugs. Let's leave the safety of port and set sail once more. I'm trying to do a ship pun for this because it's Secret of the Unicorn. All right, let's go back to the episode. The Secret of the Unicorn was published in the by now standard 62-page full-color album by Casterman in 1943, ensuring that readers didn't have to wait until the conclusion of Red Rackham before catching up on the story. The cover of the album is something of an anomaly in the series. Against a macaroon canvas, Tintin, the Captain, and Snowy are in the midst of Haddock's living room pirate play, with a circular plane inserted into the middle of the page, showcasing, at full sail, the titular ship that Urge endeavoured to present so accurately. The unicorn is justifiably presented as the main feature of the story, but it's an odd deviation from the standard album cover format. It goes without saying that the album was a commercial and critical success upon release. In retrospect, how could it not be? Urge was working a frantic pace to ensure Tintin stayed in the cultural consciousness of a nation that had little else to celebrate. Of Urge's three wartime stories to this point, The Secret of the Unicorn is visually more engaging than the muted crab with the golden claws and features none of the awkward political implications of the shooting star. It is, however, less well-read than the succeeding Red Rackham's treasure, meaning that many readers presumably dive into Tintin's treasure hunt without fully knowing how it came to be. And while this is a testament to Urge's ability to make the two volumes stand apart as distinct stories, readers who skip Unicorn are truly missing out. It balances out the exoticism of its sequel by featuring a more grounded detective story, albeit a detective story with a lavishly rendered pirate battle as its centerpiece ignore the secret of the unicorn at your own peril. If it lacks some of the iconic scenes and characters of its sequel, it is still Urge at the top of his artistic game. Just ask this contemporary reviewer from 1942. The children who follow the stories with passion Urge tells and draws for them with so much vigour, and the adults who embrace them just as shamelessly, will not doubt for a second the long hours devoted by the author to these fabulous inventions. The reviewer in question was speaking with a degree of familiarity. It was none other than the chief art critic of Le Soir, Jacques Van Melkebecker, the man who had so significantly helped Urge bring to the public the latest album that he was now so lavishly praising. However biased, his sentiments are hard to dispute. The Secret of the Unicorn remained a personal favourite of Urge himself for many years, and for good reason. The Secret of the Unicorn would be, along with Red Rackham's Treasure, the first Tintin stories published in English, in an abortive and premature attempt to enter the market in 1952, some six years before the more successful translations by the aforementioned Turner and Lonsdale Cooper. This earlier English version would rename Molensart as Puckeridge Castle, a name seemingly plucked from thin air. So if you ever find a Tintin album with this name in it, scoop it up quickly, they're collector's items now. The story has been adapted into several mediums since release. In typical fashion, the 1950s Belvision television series, Urge's Adventures of Tintin, Urge's Adventures of Tintin, 
made some creative choices when adapting this story to the small screen, including adding an entire additional act after the culmination of the story, where one of the Bird Brothers escapes and the gang has to give chase in a crop duster and a truck full of pumpkins. Why not? Marlon Spike Hall is renamed again, this time Hudson Manor, plucked from the same abyss that gave us Puckeridge Castle. It was adapted more faithfully in both the 1991 Ellipse Nirvana television series and the 1992 BBC2 radio series, the first of which forsakes the fourth wall audience address in the album's final scene for a hearty sea shanty. Delightful. The English dub of the cartoon also gives Sir Francis a Scottish accent, which I will never complain about. The album would later serve as the main basis for Steven Spielberg's and Peter Jackson's 2011 computer animated feature film aptly titled The Adventures of Tintin, The Secret of the Unicorn, fused with the first meeting of Tintin and Haddock from The Crab with the Golden Claws. In stitching these stories together, the emotional crux of the film becomes the captain's redemption, finding self-confidence through the inspiration of his ancestor. Some fans were annoyed by the captain's hapless portrayal in the film, as well as the fact that he too spoke with a Scottish accent this time. But it does give him a clear character arc that he is denied in Urge's albums. After all, in his first appearance, Urge presents Haddock as a drunken wretch who hinders Tintin's mission at almost every step. And while he certainly serves as a valuable ally in subsequent stories, it wasn't Urge's style to award him a definitive moment of triumph to show that he has truly changed. In this sense, Spielberg and Jackson extrapolate from, rather than radically alter, Urge's work. Surely, from the tales of a brave and daring ancestor, the alcoholic Haddock would not only find a sense of excitement, but of strength and pride. The film reinforces this story of redemption by doing away with the Bird Brothers entirely and enhancing the role of the erstwhile inconsequential Mr. Saccharin, turning him into a scheming ship collector who is, get this, a descendant of none other than Red Rackham, setting him up as a natural opponent for the captain. It's a very competent adaption in which the changes made from the source material are justified. And it perfectly sets up its Red Rackham sequel, which I'm sure, after 11 years, will be announced any day now. Finally, in the familiar pattern of life imitating art in the Tintin series, Urge was informed, after the publication of his story, that there was indeed an Admiral Haddock that had served in the British Navy at the same time as the fictional Sir Francis Haddock. Though it should be said the real-life Sir Richard Haddock was famous for battling not garishly attired pirates, but garishly attired Dutchmen. He fought the Dutch Navy, I mean, he didn't just attack Dutch people on the street. Or maybe he did, I didn't look that far into it. The Secret of the Unicorn has the potential to be underrated, I think, owing to the fact that it is the first volume of a very famous two-part adventure. And I think in terms of iconic characters and iconic scenes, Red Rackham's Treasure is more memorable, and I think that might lead some people to assume that The Secret of the Unicorn really only serves to set up Red Rackham's Treasure. I think that probably was the impression I had before rereading 
Secret of the Unicorn for this review. But I walked away with such an appreciation for how concise, and I'll say it again, how grounded the story is. Despite not having any exotic travel or far-off locations, I think I read it's one of only two Tintin stories to be set entirely in Belgium. It never comes across as dull. And I think that might also have something to do with Urge putting a massive pirate battle in the middle of his detective story. That probably doesn't hurt. But across the whole thing, there's just some really inspired moments, like Tintin trying to keep Haddock on track during his story and to, to stop him incorporating drinking into the story so he can hear what happens to Sir Francis. Or the reveal of Aristide's silk. Just this, this citywide crime wave is just attributed to this tiny, like, quirky, retired civil servant. And even the Bird Brothers, who I said are not that interesting as characters, the idea that <laughs> Tintin's facing off with antique collectors who are just as murderous as the gangsters in Al Capone's gang is just a really fun idea. And now that I think about it, it does match with what I know about antique collectors. I think I lack the knowledge or the vocabulary to truly discuss the artwork in the Tintin series in the same way I can maybe discuss the change in the characters. But just there's so much detail and vibrancy in every one of his panels. I think I'm getting to the point in the series where it's just hard to find things to criticize the stories for. You know, fortunately, previous previous one I had had a whole lot of anti-Semitism to talk about. But there's nothing I can really take away from The Secret of the Unicorn. I think I'm just at that stage in Urge's career where every album is just a delight to read. And I think that certainly was the case with The Secret of the Unicorn. But, of course, there's more to come. The captain still didn't have his ancestor's fortune, and Tintin didn't have the comfortable nest egg that would allow him to retire from reporting, which she clearly had no passion for anyway. If they were going to advance from the respectable inner city apartment that they spend so much time running between in The Secret of the Unicorn, they would need to find Red Rackham's treasure. But they wouldn't be able to do it alone. If Tintin is the heart of the adventure, and Haddock is the bluster, they still lacked the brains. They would need help from the final incarnation of the long sequence of absent-minded professor characters that Urge had been implementing in his stories over the last decade. This latest version, however, would not be a one-and-done appearance like the others. Absent-minded, hard of hearing, utterly brilliant. The final member of the Tintin family was due to make his appearance. Until then, however, this has been Radio Tintin. Thank you for tuning in. Let's leave it touching the ground,